This episode is a little unusual because we were not actually walking and talking. We were in the car on our way somewhere, and uh, we had a very animated conversation. The swishing you hear are cars going by in the opposite direction. It should be noted that this particular conversation about the Second Amendment occurred months before the Supreme Court ruling in June 2022, but the information is still relevant, is still pertinent, is still factual. Enjoy. What are we talking about today? Today we're going to, well, in the context of the background of last, our last episode where we talked about the Constitution and the formation of the government, the circumstances in which it was formed and why the Constitution is written and framed the way it is, we're now going to focus in specifically on a very hot-button topic that's probably going to polarize this audience to some degree. But the purpose is not to further polarize the audience. The purpose is to further, hopefully, enlighten the audience about context, background, maybe some facts and information people are not actively aware of, and put the whole Second Amendment issue, yes, people were discussing the Second Amendment, into a frame of context um, outside of, of, you know, the, the echo of our own, of our own uh, uh, opinions in our own brains and our own communities. Let's zoom out. Let's look at the bigger picture about the Second Amendment. Sure. Okay. First of all, the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. It comes just after the First Amendment. Right. And that's not, that's not by mistake. That's not like they didn't arbitrarily say, okay, guys, guns, that's the second one. Okay, we'll talk about free speech and this and that. But guns has got to be second. Is everybody in? It didn't. I'm assuming it didn't happen that way. I'm not sure. Well, there's there is an order to the amendments, yes, and you can somewhat see a priority in the order. Now, the first, I mean, you, you should start with the First Amendment because it's chock a block full of stuff. We're not going to go into detail, but it has freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. I mean, it's got multiple, multiple things in it. But to start the conversation, we should go all the way back and say. Why did we need amendments? Like what, like what was the purpose of the amendments and the Bill of Rights? So when the Constitution was written in the Second Constitutional Convention, there were concerns by many people that many of the rights and obligations that were uh, given up by the people and the states in terms of rights and the obligations in terms of what the federal government must do and the restrictions in the federal government were not explicit enough. Um, that the, it, it, it was too loosey-goosey without the Bill of Rights, i.e. the first 10 amendments. So the compromise to move the ratification process forward was to come up with this Bill of Rights, this very explicit list of things that the federal government cannot do. That's fundamentally what the Bill of Rights are. The federal government cannot limit speech. The federal government cannot limit uh, freedom of worship. The federal government cannot establish a religion which would, re which would limit freedom of worship. The federal government cannot house troops in your, in your home. And it also says in the Bill of Rights, in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, that the states retain all other powers. If you want the most explicit, you know, clear text, that the states are the paramount entities that hold the powers over people, it's in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. The federal government is not the thing that rules over everybody, but the state does. Then, uh, just to give a little history and color to this, then in the, after the Civil War, in the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, 
there was a uh, those amendments explicitly the technical term is incorporated many of the the constitutional rights and the and the amendments against the states. So until incorporation occurred, only certain things the states couldn't do that were explained in the in the constitution. Meaning, could a state establish religion? Yes, for a while they did. Could a state limit speech? Yes, for a while they did. And then incorporation happened as a legal doctrine, and then the requirements of the federal government were applied to state governments. And I bring this up because until very, very recently, the Heller and McDonald decisions, it was not clear that the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states, meaning the restrictions that the federal government face, i.e. the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, that that text and that legal doctrine applied to the states. That's why the states could have different laws. And now the, the, the Supreme Court said, no, that right, that restriction on government applies to the states as well. And that's why now and in the going future, you're going to see a lot of legal activity around the Second Amendment because as states' laws that are different from other states are examined, the question is, does it does it violate the Second Amendment? So let's talk about the Second Amendment and let's talk about the text of the Second Amendment. Let's talk about the context of the Second Amendment. But before we do that, does does that make sense? Yeah, I think if I could just drive home one point sure. that really was made clear in our previous episode is that the Constitution is not necessarily for, I mean, it's not, the audience isn't Joe Schmo reading a Sunday morning paper. The audience is the government. The audience is the Joe Schmo. It applies to the government. It doesn't apply to Joe Schmo. Right. Joe Schmo doesn't act doesn't have to act on what he reads to the government. The, the the government has to be restrained. Power corrupts and absolute power absolutely, absolutely. corrupts. So with, with when a government has it has power and that all the more so absolute power, it's easily gonna color outside the lines and the government and the constitution is designed to keep that power limited to to what it says so it's really to restrain the government from well becoming overbearing yeah well, more importantly the the constitution is a manual of operation for the government not a manual for operation for a person so in the easiest most simplest standing on one foot explanation of the second amendment is it to protect the the right the, the rights given the people to not have an out-of-control government is it is it to protect the people from well, from a situation by by arming the people to not just to, to kind of back up the paper trail of the Constitution. Well, the, 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 the Second Amendment, first of all, doesn't grant a right. The Constitution does not grant any rights. The, the Constitution recognizes the God given inalienable rights of an individual and inalienable means unable to be alienated, unable to be corrupted, unable to be given away. And what the framers saw was that the right to defend oneself is an inalienable right, that just by living in a society, you have a right to defend yourself. And you can defend yourself from other people. You can defend yourself from animals. You can defend yourself from government. You can defend yourself from, from people causing you harm. And in fact, we were involved in the American Revolution 
on a sort of nonviolent basis or, you know, very limited violence until the British general came out of Boston to take our guns. And that's when they said, hey, hey, we're not having any of that. And by we mean guns, we mean the equivalent of assault rifles of the time, you know, muskets and gunpowder and cannon. They were fully armed people. So, in, in you know, the, the, the fire, the, the shots that started the, the American Revolution were shots to protect the right to keep and bear arms, right? You know, that, so it, it is intrinsic to understand that the right to keep and bear arms is seen as, an, as a right of a person to keep and bear arms to defend themselves. Now, there are descriptions around uh, well, but it says, you know, a, a well-regulated militia being necessary for a free state. That is a true statement, but it is not, as the Supreme Court has said, it is not applicable to the text to keep and bear arms. And the meanings of words matter. Regulate does not mean in the context of when it was written of to have regulations. It was to be of good working order. A well-regulated clock was one that worked, for example. Also, when they say militia, there are statements of the founders that say, who is the militia? The entire people. Also, the Second Amendment doesn't say, uh, you know, the right to keep and bear arms shall be regulated by the state to maintain a militia. It says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The people means individuals. It means individuals when, it's, when it talks about religion. It means individuals when it talks about search and seizure of papers. It means individuals when it talks about the right of association. So it, it, it seems incomprehensible that the right to keep and bear arms shall apply to the individual, but not in the case of guns because it applies to the state to regulate them. And then, then the Supreme Court has, has recognized that, albeit late. Um, current. Now, there is one of the fundamental things that people tend to bring up when they talk about gun control and how the right to keep and bear arms is limited is that the state or police powers or whatever are there to protect you and therefore you don't need a gun to protect yourself. That's one stool of the seat of the uh, of the people who want to restrict the right to keep and bear arms. Unfortunately for them, they couldn't be more wrong. The Supreme Court has ruled on multiple, multiple, multiple times that the duty of the state to protect you, to use force to protect you, is actually highly, highly, highly limited and only in specific circumstances. The cases I would point to are cases called DeShaney and Castle Rock are, are two of the biggest ones. In Castle Rock, there was a woman who had a um, restraining order against her, I believe, ex-husband or boyfriend, I, I forget, but someone with whom she had had uh, two children. The restraining order said that he can't become within 100 yards or 200 yards or 500 yards or whatnot. And he was reported to have violated that and her children were missing. And she went to the police station 
and called the police station on three or four or five occasions at, at, at Castle Rock, I believe it's in Colorado, and said, please, please, please go to my, my husband's house. He's, I've got a restraining order. He was reportedly near my kids. My kids are missing. And they declined to do anything. They just said, no, we're not, we're not interested in doing this. I believe they gave an excuse of, well, he was in within 500 yards before and you didn't file a complaint. So we don't feel like we want to file a complaint now. Um, and that was highly distressing to her. And it turns out highly distressing to his children because later that day at two or three in the morning, he showed up at the police station, armed, walked in and started firing, committed essentially suicide by cop. And the bodies of his two children were found in the trunk of his car. And she sued. She sued the police department saying, I told you, I warned you, I have a, I have a court order. I have a court order saying that he's not supposed to do this. You, you're not enforcing a court order. My civil rights and my children's civil rights were violated. And the Supreme Court said, no. Now, because you and your children were not in a um, in a, uh, a a protective relationship or a custodial relationship with the police, meaning they had taken custody of you and you they had explicitly said you were under our protection, there is no duty to do anything. So. so and she lost and she lost by like eight, one or nine, zero or seven, two. Like it wasn't, it wasn't close. Um, and this in a series of other cases, and I can give another example. Um, in fact, I'll do that now. So in another case, I believe it was the Shaney. Some women heard a uh, person break into their house and they said, not bad and they climbed out of a window onto us their, their bedrooms were on the second story they climbed out of the window and they they were on the roof in the dark and they called the police and they said there are people in our house please come and knock and come in there are people in our house well the 911 operator mislabeled the call so the police just sort of drove by they didn't see anything the women saw the police drop by drive by and they were like, what happened? And the cops took off. So they called again saying, no, no, we're here. They're in the house. We still hear them making noise. We're out on the roof. Please, please come. So this time the cops came and they came up to the door and they knocked and they said, is anybody there? Hello. And the robbers not being total idiots just were really quiet. So the women because the cops came and the robbers were quiet, thought everything had been resolved. They came back in, but the robbers actually were still there. And they uh, were captured by the, the burglars and were um, assaulted and molested uh, for 10 to 12 hours, I believe, before the robbers decided to leave. The women sued. All right, they said, look, we called, we told you, please come. We told you to come into our house and you didn't do it. And this happened in Washington, D.C., if I remember correctly. And the Supreme Court said, nope, not a custodial relationship. There is no duty to protect. Sorry. So what the court cases really say is, unless the cops have arrested you, handcuffed you, and thrown you in the back of a car, 
if a mob shows up to uh, to attack you, then they're responsible for taking care of you. But if you're out on the street free and the cops are on the corner watching a mob attack you, they don't have to do anything. And, and you have no recourse for that event. Okay. So let's unpack this a second. Because when it, you first told me these things a couple of years ago, very, it was very distressing, Yeah, to be honest. Yep. You know, we grow up watching cop shows and the neighborhood police officer comes to visit the school and every kid wants to be a fireman or a police officer. Yep. And so we kind of imbue them with only the best of intentions. Um, and then you hear about, uh, you know, police who, who just disregard or fail to or reject enforcing a protection order. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's... It's spine tingling, basically. Um, it's my, it, it, it's mind blowing. Yeah, and it's and it's upsetting because of how we grew up, you know, understanding the nature of what we thought was law enforcement, and how much tax money goes to the police, and how much power the police have over our everyday lives. Let's not forget that everything the government does is really ultimately can be traced to the the end of a gun. Right. Okay. If you don't want to pay a fine, if you don't want to pay a ticket if you don't want to turn your music down ultimately it's going to be you know hopefully polite at the beginning but if you follow it to its end result it's going to be at the at the end of a gun that you're going to be compelled to do something the ultimate conflict is resolved by force that's what you're saying like if you refuse to park your car right refuse to pay pay the ticket refuse to show up to a court to dispute it and they want to they use that and they ultimately res- resolve the conflict with force. Right. So everything the government wants you to do or, or tells you you need to do, ultimately it's going to come down to they have the guns <laughs> the, right. and they can use them right. and they will use them. Right. Um, and that could be, you know, for good or for bad, but that's ultimately, ultimately how it's going to go. So in further unpacking what you said, obviously these court cases you said there's about six of them uh yeah there's more there's the the other one that's equally distressing and the name escapes me which is unfortunate um is a social worker had been going to the home of a a father who has been separated from his wife um and the wife was complaining um of abuse of all sorts of problems and the social worker saw some of it refused to do anything about it and eventually um, the child was beaten senseless um, and into mental retardation. Uh, and the woman sued the social worker and said, you were there to protect my my child. Uh, you didn't do anything. I reported it. You saw it. And the court said, yep, not a custodial relationship, no duty to protect. Thank you very much. No, no further violations occurred. The police don't have to do anything. They don't have to enforce court or, or orders. And social workers don't have to do anything. You know, even if they see abuse. Now, if they if they fraudulently create reports or they file things that are incorrect, they may be uh, prosecuted for that. But not. But your rights are not uh, uh, violated if the government doesn't do what you think it's supposed to do. Now, to defend the government a little bit here, or any government entity, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I get what the what the Supreme Court is saying. I mean, everyone sued because a cop didn't do what they thought they needed him to do. There'd be there'd be lawsuits up the wazoo. What up the wazoo? Well, what happens if then there'd be yeah. precedents? But precedent? Oh no! I mean, just keep simple things. 
the fire truck took seven minutes to get to my house, not five that like it took to, to go other places. And in those two minutes, my entire bill, right? Like everything would be litigated and it would bankrupt, you know, it, 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 organ it would bankrupt cities and states and counties and municipalities. And that's just not a tenable situation to live. I mean, there's a balance we have to have between the power that the government has and the responsibilities that the government has and the power that individuals have and the responsibilities that individuals have. So in the absence of, and also just another key thing was, and it's very important, is that's why the term taken into custody is so critical right. because that's the real line of delineation between where the police have an obligation to protect you and where they and where they don't. If you if you're taken into if you're taken into a police car, you're handcuffed, they handcuffs, they they have to protect you. Right. Then you have a case. Right. I think. Well, I mean, my understanding is that there's am I being detained and am I being taken into custody or arrested? I think the protective order starts at, at detention because you are not. They have in, they have initiated their power to restrict your movement, and and that is a de minimis amount of control like you don't if somebody attacks you while you're quote-unquote detained are you and you run away right and the cops come and arrest you for leaving while you're detained it gets a messy right so i don't know of any court case that, that has that exact you know example but yeah i mean you know you're if the police limit your ability to defend yourself then you have the, the you have the right to rely on them to to defend you that's the basics Right. So, okay. So now we've established that the police don't have an obligation to protect you unless you're in their custody. Correct. If they did have an obligation to protect you, they're, you know, everyone could sue for every, everything. Correct. You know, uh, you know, cops could save three out of four people in a family and they're going to sue the crap out of them for not, not saving, not the, saving fourth. the fourth. You didn't get there early enough. Right. For a slew of reasons. You exactly. made them, you, you, you shot when you shouldn't have shot. You didn't shoot when you should have shot. Right. You didn't shoot enough. You shot the wrong guy. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, just a, a ton of different things. Uh, you know, you didn't think to look in the closet, you know, whatever. I mean, you could, you could, the scenarios could get, I mean, they're, it's they're out. So, and that makes sense. You'd bankrupt the government. You'd tie up the courts. You'd set precedent. Some judges would, well, this was, you know, the, this person sued and won in this case, Your Honor. So suddenly it's it very, very twisted. Right. So, 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 so in the absence of them, in the absence of the, of the law enforcement having an obligation to protect you, you, there must, there must be, a, the, you're what, what steps in is the God-given right to protect yourself. Right. And how do you do that? How can you do that? So what are you up against in protecting yourself? You're up against people who have guns and, and. And bats and, and knives and knives and whatever, right. whatever, whatever they decide. So you can't protect yourself with a, with a, you know, with a spoon. You can't protect yourself with, with a baseball bat in a, in a gunfight. Right. So ultimately, if we are going to be responsible for ourselves. And the Supreme Court has said on multiple times that ultimately you are responsible for protecting yourself, then we should have access to as much, um, weaponry to protect ourselves as possible. No, I'm not. You're a complete pacifist, and you think, okay, whatever comes to me, I got coming. It's God's will that I get, you know, shot in the face. You know, that's your choice, but it's not the choice of the public. Right. I want to protect. I want to be able to protect myself. I want to protect my kids. I want to protect my family. I want to protect right. my friends. If that, you know, just because that might not be an individual's choice because they're a, a pacifist or, or whatever you want to call them, doesn't doesn't 
doesn't give them the right to take everyone else's rights to protect themselves away. So, so there's a, uh, an idea that everybody has a gun to protect themselves. The question is, is it in your house or is it in the cop's house? Right. And so ultimately violence may be necessary to protect yourself. And the question is, are you able to, to do it or do you rely on somebody else to do it? And that's just a societal truism. Now, one of the other legs of the uh, gun control uh, folks is uh, individuals should not have access to military weapons. You've heard this, right? Nobody needs uh, a, 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 an AR. Nobody needs an AK. Nobody needs these things. And in fact, humorously or not so humorously, somewhat uh, tragically, uh, there are examples of left-leaning gun control folks with messaging and tweets and the like from a couple of years ago saying, nobody needs an AR. It's ridiculous. There's no logic to it. You have to be a special kind of stupid to think you need that. And then because of what's going on in the Ukraine now, they're praising that, you know, the government is handing out AR or, or AR equivalents to their, uh, to their civilians um, and saying, isn't it great? And you should support retweet. Isn't it awesome? Um, the, the illogic of it, I think, escapes them, uh, but it doesn't escape uh, people like us, where wouldn't it be better if we had those weapons in our hands previously and were able to practice with them and get good at them and, I don't know, be well-regulated with them, so to speak. It's, all, it's also, a, it also might have been a little more of a deterrent against an invading force to know that the citizens were individually armed. Individually armed. So, the um, uh, unfortunately... The Supreme Court has ruled um, in a court case in Miller, um, I believe in the 1930s, that it is the fact that an arm is associated with a military outcome that makes it unregulatable. So in, in the uh, aftermath of prohibition where gangsters armed themselves with fully automatic weapons and there was basically blood running in the street and murder everywhere, there's something called the National Firearms Act was was created that severely limited fully automatic weapons and provided some taxation on on other weapons, including a sawed off shotgun, a shotgun that had been, you know, uh, the barrel had been sawed off and restricted to a smaller amount. Um, and a gentleman named Miller said, but was arrested and fined and uh, and and convicted for not paying the tax on his sawed off shotgun among other crimes that he committed. And he said, yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's illegal. Right? That's unconstitutional. You can't infringe on my right to bear arms. And it, interestingly, uh, many people will point to Miller and say it's, it's a questionable case. And there are a lot of questionable things about it, uh, mainly because Miller died. And before it was uh, heard by the, by the Supreme Court, um, and, um, and I don't believe his, his attorneys even showed up. Uh, so it was sort of a one-sided affair. And the, the ruling in Miller was because there is no military application for a sawed-off shotgun, it can be regulated with a tax. That's sort of the, the, the gist of what they said. So it is beyond hypocrisy to some 70, 80 years later turn around and say, okay, we're going to ignore Miller. We're going to ignore the Supreme Court and say, because a, an AR-style rifle, which is not fully automatic, but kind of looks and feels 
like a military rifle. We're going to regulate it because it's a military grade rifle because it shoots military grade ammunition. But let me get let me just get this straight. So seventy years ago, they put a tax by by looking at the text of the Second Amendment. They put a tax on weapons that did not fit into the sort of category of military style. Well, like I'm a sawed-off shot. I, I don't know that I would say that. I would say that they they the the Congress passed a law that restricted certain weapons and that put a tax on other weapons. I don't know what their thinking was, but the Supreme Court, when they evaluated the constitutionality of that law, said because this fact pattern with, with Miller was that the weapon was not a military-style weapon, in their opinion, it, therefore, we can tax it. So you know, the Supreme Court justified it through in that methodology. So, so they were excluding the non-military-style weapon from the list of weapons that we would be protected. Yeah. Okay. And now they're turning that around and saying we, the military-style weapons should be reserved for the military, right? And we should not be in the hands of of civilians. C correct. In 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 contradiction to Absolutely. what the what the Supreme Court yeah. said under 180 uh, degrees from what it was before. exactly under Miller, right? Um, because again, the goal I believe of the the gun restriction folks is to disarm people uh, because they don't fundamentally trust people. They don't fundamentally trust the people with, with guns, even though the vast, 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 vast majority of gun owners do not commit any crimes, right? They just don't trust people. They somehow trust the police who commit crimes with guns all the time in, in some measures at higher rates than civilian ownership, uh, but then they also say defund the police because they don't trust them. Like I, I don't understand a lot of the logic. It's very inconsistent. It's very, very inconsistent. So let's let's look at some of the. Well, first of all, there are what like 30, 30 million gun. How many million gun owners in this country? So the numbers that I've seen and has changed over time is something around a third or a little more of households have guns in them. So there's about a hundred and ten million households or so. So that would be about 35 million households that have guns because it, it it's hard to okay so if you if you own a gun and your wife and you live in the same house and she has access to the gun is she a gun owner right so they tend to measure it by by households but you know they're the, the best estimates i've seen are 100 to 120 million gun owners i think at this point in the conversation people who are well, I mean, just to create a binary situation, there's pro-gun, anti-gun, and a lot of people in between who maybe their their minds are kind of shifting as as we're talking in one direction or the other. Well, I, I would say there's three groups: gun owners who don't want gun restrictions, non-gun owners that don't want restrictions, and non-gun owners that do want restrictions. Okay, fair enough. Right. And there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there because there are people who are like, yeah, we have a right to defend ourselves, but I believe in background checks. I don't want people who are mentally unstable having a gun because they're not going to be responsible gun owners. So they're they're pro Second Amendment, they're pro gun ownership, but they're they're also let's put some measures in there to to protect the rest of society from people who, you know, otherwise would just have the right to go buy a gun, but but are 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 
chances are going to use it for the wrong purposes and, and hurt innocent people. Right. Well, where's a rational place okay, to fall okay, on this gun? Let's, 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 let's talk about that, right? You used to be able to order a gun through the mail from Sears into the 1960s. A real gun or a pellet gun? Real gun. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my my understanding is that the JFK assassin got his gun through mail order, right? Is that COD or did they print? I, 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 I I'm just think, curious, like, you know. I think it's COD. Yeah, I, I, okay. But, but my point is high schools used to have shooting clubs. In There are many places in the Midwest and, and the upper Midwest where, you know, you would have people who went hunting in the morning and had a gun in their uh, in their car and left it in their car locked up. And and, uh, and there were no school shootings at that time. Uh, or were there? I mean, there were a few, not... but the... I mean, it depends how you define it, but the, the largest mass murder at school was a bombing. Like 97 kids were killed in a, in a basically a car bomb or a truck bomb in Michigan in 1908 or 1910, something like that. And, and so, you know, Japan has knife violence. I mean, there are, there is violence, right? Um, you know, and, and it's sort of like, you know, more people are killed with, hammers or knives than they are with rifles so do we do we stop people from getting hammers or knives no right you know when most studies of the defensive use of guns put the average at two to three million defensive uses of guns a year now there is one study that puts it at about 50 60 thousand and that's the one that most people use but even the obama administration's study on gun use put it at about 2.2 million i think so, and when you look at other countries who have restricted guns, yes, gun murder goes down. That is absolutely true. But what you tend to find is rapes and assaults and break-ins and other forms of violence go up. You know, taking, you know, it's not a static situation. You could argue that it's a lot easier to impulsively pull something out, pull a trigger from afar than it is to actually take out a hammer or a knife and actually engage somebody. It's a different... I mean, listen, if someone's, if someone's bent on violence, it's going to happen one right, way but, or the other. But, but handgun violence occurs within seven yards, right? It doesn't... Like, like most handgun battles are within 22 feet. It's not like you're, you know, you're shooting people from afar. Um, but the, 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 the point I'm making is that you trade one set of violence off for another set of violence. And that's the choice you're making. You know, and if the number was, you know, a million extra assaults, is that acceptable to stop, you know, a thousand deaths? That, that, that's the real world decision. But the framer said, we're not playing that game. That's not, that's not even in the realm of what we do because you have an inalienable God-given right to defend yourselves. So the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't matter. That's what the Second Amendment says. Another thing we should we should kind of discuss here are gun statistics because they are largely misunderstood and skewed purposefully in a lot of cases to uh, to, to to make it seem like there's something they're not. Mm -hmm. um, the number of gun deaths in the country are roughly thirty thousand. It varies a little bit, but it's roughly thirty. 000. Now, does that include suicides? About two thirds of gun deaths are su suicides. Um, about twenty two thousand. Okay, so out of twenty, so out of the thirty thousand, twenty-two thousand are suicide. Yeah. So it's not person-on-person 
crime, violence, it's self-reflected. That leaves about, what, 8,000 or so? 8,000 or so. 8,000 actual gun no, we're caught systems. No, no, non-suicide gun deaths. All right, okay, so so you now have to take out uh, about uh, about 1,500 more because they're either justifiable or accidental. Okay. Right? That includes police, police shootings? Police shooting. You know, justifiable police shootings would be a gun death. Right, but not not murder, right? And so, so stopping a, someone in the act of a crime, sure, the, the, the bad guy gets killed. Bad guy gets killed. A, that counts in a gun statistic that uh, we all hear. That's a gun death, but that's a justifiable homicide. Homicide, right? Okay. So you have around between sixty five hundred and seventy five hundred. It's it, again these these numbers from the FBI vary by year. Uh, gun murders, right? And of them, about two thirds are gang related crime, usually around um, drug territory or, or or the like. So, if you're not a criminal, not engaging in crime, and uh, and you kill somebody, and but you commit a crime by doing so, it's about a thousand to fifteen hundred gun deaths a year. And that's a, a legal gun owner who commits a crime. Now, in terms of percentages, that's as little or less a, a percent of police who commit a crime with their gun. You said wait, you said legal gun owner. What what if like uh, what about all the illegal guns? No, no. So if if you illegally own a gun, you're committing a crime. So that that's a crime. You're already committing a crime, right? So, and you should you should already be restricted from owning a gun, right? Yeah. So I, I think I think one of the main arguments among anti-gun folks, folks are it's like chemistry. If you have fewer particles floating around, the less interactions you'll have. So if you can outlaw guns, I mean, everyone talks to us about Australia, but Australia is an island. It's a little easier to outlaw. And they still have guns. And their gun violence went up when they, when they outlaw guns. Really? And I, I think in general, though, just to, just to finish the point, is that if we can at least regulate guns, we'll get a lot of guns off the street. There'll be less gun violence because there'll be less availability okay. of guns. But let's talk about that. Okay. There are on something on the order of twenty to 22,000 gun regulations already on the books between federal, state, and county laws, right? Most mass murderers either obtained their guns legally or committed a crime to get a gun from a legal gun owner. So the Sandy Hook person, for example, murdered his mother and took the gun and transported it illegally. So there, there are already laws. Now, what is most frustrating is... You have to fill out a form in order to get a uh, a gun, in order to get a a what they call instant background check, although it's not so instant in certain states like California where you have a 10-day waiting period. Um, and that form is a federal document that you sign and attest to under federal perjury laws that are felonies. And they find that out of the few million gun purchases a year, 50,000, 60,000 of the applications are illegally filled out and attested to. Meaning, somebody says, I am not a felon, 
I deserve a gun, give me a gun. Or they say, I've never been adjudicated as being mentally unstable, which is another, you know, um, limitation for getting a gun. Of those 50,000 violations of federal law that are punishable with fines and time in jail, less than 100 are prosecuted. Wow. So to turn around and say, we need more laws, we need more restrictions, we need more because gun violence is out of control, when the existing laws are manifestly not enforced is a real, real significant problem, right? You also have the problem of straw purchases where the girlfriend of somebody goes in and buys a gun and then hands it to somebody who's restricted, um, but they then that person goes and commits a crime, but the straw buyer isn't prosecuted, right? That's another you know classic example. The the and, and so the pro gun folks argument is, why don't you stop making things harder? Why don't you stop making it more complicated? Why don't you stop adding layers of difficulty and enforce the laws that you have? And because if you had effective laws that were enforced, maybe you wouldn't have this problem. Right. But that's not on the agenda of the uh, of the people who want to restrict the right to keep and bear arms. They want more laws and more and more and more, because ultimately in that confusion, the ability to prosecute any individual person becomes a choice of the district attorney and everybody is in violation if they, if they want to see fit. So if they really want to restrict gun ownership and irresponsible gun ownership, Here's the laws that are there. Well, they should they should be prosecuting people who are lying. Yeah. It should be it is a felony, you're saying, to lie on the application Correct. to get a gun. Correct. And that in a sense should be as punishable and they should go after them with at least as much zeal as they would someone using a gun illegally. All I'm saying is you've got a law that you're not enforcing to then turn around and say, Well, but things are bad, so we need more laws. When on the force of law, she got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that seems a more useful uh, a- application of resources than wasting time on laws, creating more laws that you may or may not enforce, right? But there are a couple other examples of statistics that are, are significant. Um, in Virginia, I believe in the 90s, they created a law that, added 10-year mandatory sentence with no reductions for any crime committed with a gun. And guess what? Gun crimes went down, right? Economics works. Um, in Orlando in the, I think, 60s or early 70s, they were they suffered a, a significant increase in rapes, and the city council passed an ordinance that allowed for the free gun classes for any woman that wanted one. And lo and behold, a lot of women took the took the gun classes and rapes in the city went down by 80 or 90 percent because criminals don't want to deal with people who have guns as much as, you know, as, as much as people think the opposite. Um, criminals have said that having a flag outside of your house reduces uh, break-ins by 50 percent. American, American flag. Because they feel, well, if you have an American flag, you likely have a gun. Um, but... 
one of the best examples is the town of Kennesaw, Georgia. Kennesaw, Georgia, I think in the 80s, passed an ordinance that all houses must have a gun in them, in, except for certain exceptions. And lo and behold, break-ins and violent crime dropped by 70, 80% in the city. You know, an armed populace is highly resistant to criminals. Now, gun, uh, um, uh, gun restriction folks, you know, rightly point out that, but it also might, they're, they don't rightly point out, they try to make the argument that more guns equals more crime, but that isn't the statistics. That isn't what happens when law-abiding people use guns to defend themselves. They usually do a good job. And there's also multiple examples of large-scale issues around guns. So we're in Los Angeles. I grew up in Los Angeles. We, I remember the Rodney King riots. And the Rodney King riots are this very interesting mix of what we said about government re not required to protect you and self-defense. And what do I mean by that? Most people don't remember that the police performed a quote-unquote tactical redeployment in the face of rioters, and which basically means they ran away. Now, I'm not saying they should have run away. They were faced with thousands and tens of thousands of people who were armed with either guns or other implements of violence, and they didn't want to you know, engage with them, which, is, which makes sense. Um, but it left people to defend themselves. And the famous story of the Korean shopkeepers are they shot at and drove off a crowd of rioters who had come to loot their, their, their stores as they had looted the stores, you know, in the miles leading up to them. And that's an example where the police had no duty to defend you, didn't defend you, withdrew from defending you, and you were on your own to defend yourself, and you did. And in fact, it took the... Uh, the military, the Marine Brigade, they think it's the 3rd Brigade to come up from Camp Pendleton to restore order in the city five days later. So there are, that's one example where having guns and access to guns to protect yourself is highly needed. Now, you can argue, oh, that doesn't happen. You know, it's so rare. But it happened. It was, it was rare enough to happen <laughs> and they needed to defend themselves. And then there's the example of the Battle of Tennessee, and this is one that most people don't want to talk about because in the 1940s, when a large number of veterans came back from World War II, they came back to a highly corrupt machine-operated electoral system run by Democrats in the state of Tennessee. It was so corrupt that the police regularly took possession of the local um, uh, electoral boxes and quote unquote, secured them and made sure that everything was okay. But in this election, and I think it was 46, 47, um, the police harassed a member, who, uh, a, a person who was not voting Democratic, who was running for uh, a city office, who was a veteran. Um, they uh, beat him up. They tried to scatter his voters and, and things were getting ugly on election day. So much so that the veterans were like, we don't trust the police to keep the, the, um, the boxes safe. So when they came to grab the boxes, they fought them. And the police grabbed the boxes and took them to the station. 
and the veterans grabbed their World War II weapons and surrounded the, the place and demanded to come in to see the electoral boxes because they did not trust that they would be done. And a large-scale six-hour fight ensued, and the, um, and the National Guard had to be called out. And it turns out that the police were violating the sanctity of the boxes, and they were, they were rummaging through them, and they were corrupting the electoral process. And given the highly partisan nature of our elections today, this is very telling. Like, we have to have trust in the system to work. Democracy works when the losers trust that everything was fair. And transparency is the best thing for that. And this was an example where people used arms against their government in, in, to fight corruption. And, you know, sorry, it happened in our, in, in our, uh, in our history. So there's plenty of examples of guns, increasing gun usage or gun usage to fight government corruption, to fight, you know, the lack of government enforcement of laws, to protect oneself. And it works. It just fundamentally works. And, and you know, I don't know how else to describe it than, than more guns are not necessarily bad for society. It's more bad people are bad for society, not the gun. Are there statistics? Uh, I know there are some cities and towns that have more of a concentration of gun owners, certainly like in Texas and Maine. Are there are there crime statistics to support that where there is the expectation that there are more citizens with guns, crime is lower? Um, it, it actually turns out, if you look at the state-level data, that there's a slight indication that um, more guns is less crime. Uh, you know, it's inversely correlated slightly. The, the problem is that you have all these other factors that affect gun crime. Um, concentration of population, amount of drug usage, uh, poverty, um, other crimes. That's it. Like, it's not, it's not a single variable problem. So that's why you'll have places like Vermont, which have very high gun ownership and very low crime, but it's a largely rural state. Right. And you'll have other, you know, highly urbanized areas. But what is clear is high urbanization and lack of enforcement and restricting people's ownership of guns doesn't reduce crime. It, it might reduce um, certain categories of gun crime, but it doesn't reduce crime overall. And it depends on what your goals are, as we talked about in a previous podcast. If your goal is to reduce gun crime, then sure, get rid of guns. But you'll have knife crime and bat crime and rape and, and, and other kinds of violence. And that, if that's okay with you, then fine. But, you know, that's not, that's not the measure, right? That's, and it's, it's that discussion of trade-offs and, you know, benefits and things like that. That's exactly what the founders did not want to have happen. That is why self-defense is a, an inalienable right, and the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If we as a society no longer want people to keep and bear arms, then repeal the Second Amendment. There is a mechanism to do it. But this trying to eat away at it with regulation and laws in violation of the Second Amendment create some morass and distrust and other problems that I don't think are beneficial. And in, I mean, no, no, 
Second Amendment conversation would be complete without discussing or mentioning the NRA. Right. And it seems like it, just feeding, you know, dovetailing off of what you said about distrust, there's this concept that any kind of restriction, even ones that might be considered, quote-unquote, reasonable, is the the camel's nose in the tent, such as, um, well, first of all, you have red flag laws. Right. You have the issue, the question about um, uh, background checks for mental health, things like that. Sure. What's... Where does all that fall in with this? I mean, they sound reasonable on the face of it. I don't want, I want responsible people to have access to guns to protect themselves. I don't want, I don't want mentally deficient people, or or people with, uh, you know, with proven backgrounds of violence or instability to have access to to those same things. Am I unreasonable for feeling that way? The devil's in the details, right? Like. Who gets to judge somebody unfit? What are the what are the parameters? Um, what you're really saying is, I trust other people with guns in the government to judge people valid gun owners or not. So, is someone who believes that Trump was not elect that, that Trump was uh, was kept from the presidency illegally in the 2020 election? Are they sane? Can the government can a government official say that's crazy conspiracy theory and I'm going to take away your guns? Right. Like, who do you trust? Why do you trust somebody to judge somebody as as uh, mentally incapable of having a gun? But you don't judge people as capable of having a gun. Right. Like, I don't trust you to have a gun, but I trust somebody else to judge whether you can have a gun. Right? That's a very, very, very fine line. And, and unless there are clear red line very um, bright lined definitions, then no, I don't trust people. I don't want a judge to be able just without a hearing. Right? Most red, red flag laws have no self-representation. No, it, it can be done uh, ex parte. Right? Explain what that is, the red flag. Sure. So somebody can go to somebody else. So, so, uh, a wife can go to a judge and say, I'm scared for, about my husband. I don't want him to have a gun. And the judge goes, okay, I'm going to send the cops over and grab his gun, and we're going to put him on a on a 14-day, you know, or 30-day, you know, gun restriction. And there, in many of these laws, the person has no right to represent themselves or have representation and dispute the charge, right? There, there's no incentive to not execute the red flag restriction, right? Because, God forbid, something happens and you get blamed, right? And, and so... Do we want to be in the business of pre-crime, right? This is a bigger conversation, right? Do we want to be in the business of saying, hey, people who read this book on average commit more crime, so we should restrict the book. Or people who say these things on average, right? Or I, you're acting in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable, so I'm not going to... Or is it the act of the crime that should be punished. Well, we also, you know, I think part of it is that we want to prevent a situation where you have a shooting and later it comes out that, oh, the, the man's psychiatrist, you know, uh, what he, the man told the psychiatrist repeatedly that he had homicidal thoughts or, or the, the kid was trouble or the kid did this or they, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
Right. Like that has come out. Like, what, like, like what happened in Virginia Tech. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But he got his gun legally or the Santa Barbara shooting where the guy got his gun legally. Right. But the, the, the problem is, is that having homicidal thoughts is not committing homicide. You never think, oh, I'd kill you if the person cut you off in, in the road. Like, where's the line? Define for me the line where somebody should not be able to have a gun. Well, as you know, right now, felons can't own guns. Sure. Time. Okay, that's a, that's a bright line law. I'm, I, and I understand that. But the problem is, is since the 1930s, the, the laws have only ever increased in gun restriction. No automatic weapons, tax on automatic weapons background checks, FFL licenses, face-to-face transfers, right? Everything has been, quote-unquote, reasonable, but there's no amount of of gun violence that can exist that won't necessitate somebody asking for more laws, even though they don't enforce the laws they have, right? So where does it end? At what point do you say, enough's enough? I'm just, I like, tell me where that point is. Because... I don't, I mean, if, if, if you, why do you trust the police to, to determine who can have a gun? Why do you trust the federal judiciary to determine who can have a gun? The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, right? But yet, hey, we can vote by mail. I can have no ID. I can send a, a vote through the mail without any security, and it can be returned by the mail. Well, why don't we treat guns like that? Or why don't we treat guns like like driver's licenses, where licenses are valid across all states? If you get a concealed carry permit in the state of Washington, it's valid everywhere. I, I'm just saying, let's have a systematic and logical and defined approach to deal with this issue. And right now we don't. Right now, the, the, the systematic and logical approach is, I want as many laws to keep guns from people as possible. That's the argument from the gun grabbers. Now, speaking of the NRA... They actually were founded to increase marksmanship and to help African-Americans protect themselves after the Civil War. They are a non-racially based, you know, everybody who wants a gun should have a gun. And the vast majority of their funding goes through to gun education. Right. Yes, they do lobbying. And yes, the current administration at the NRA was foolish and squandered their donations and may or may not have acted illegally. But that does not make them an evil group. I mean, if, if, if they're evil, then why isn't the Sierra Club evil? Or why isn't labor unions evil? Or why isn't anybody that is um, lobbying for the rights that they see that they want, why aren't they evil? Why isn't the you know, Planned Parenthood evil if you're pro-life? Right? We can we can cast aspersions of evil on people, but they're just playing by the rules and lobbying their government for what they want. A protection afforded them by the First Amendment. Thank you very much. That's all I got. <laughs> I think we've kind of covered all the, the spectrum of arguments here, or at least identified them. Yeah. A couple of things are very clear. One is that the police have no no obligation to protect you or your family unless you're taking it to custody. Uh, statistics are not what they seem. They need to be unpacked because they don't give, they, they don't give an accurate view of, of the real situation, absent things we you know don't take for granted. And statistics are not the basis of your rights. 
right? Your right to free speech is not based on whether the rate at which people say racist things or things that offend you. Your right to, to religion or is not, uh, and to worship is not based on whether people believe and act in, you know, inappropriately because of their religion. Your rights are individual and God-given, and the Constitution exists to, to disallow the government from infringing on those rights. Statistics are not the issue. It's whether or not you have the right to something or not. If you want to change it, change the Constitution. Don't try to, don't try to eat away at it and cut the legs out from under it because doing so causes all sorts of other problems. Right. Thanks. Thank you. That's a wrap. <laughs>